Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I am Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer, and Josh Abatoy is with me this morning, who is the Executive Director of American Reformer. And uh, for a little change this time, we have a guest. Our guest this week is Chase Davis. Chase is the lead pastor at the Well Church in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, He's lived in Boulder for the last 12 years. He lives there with his wife and, and two sons. Uh, Chase is also a Ph.D. candidate at the Free University of Amsterdam and closer to home for us. He is a Cotton Mather Fellow this summer with American Reformer. So we're very glad to have you on the podcast this morning, Chase, and welcome. Uh, we, we Thank you. It's great to be here. We are going to talk this morning about um, your experience in the, the Acts 29 network of churches. Um, you have, you've written an article with your, um, your fellow pastor at your church, uh, Matt Patrick, for American Reformer. So if you're listening, you want to take a look at this article. It's called Acts 29 and the Big Sort. That's at AmericanReformer.org. And in this article, you, you lay out the, the situation um, for your church with regard to Acts 29. There's been some turmoil lately for you guys. Um, could you uh, could you introduce this to us? Could you tell us about what's been going on? Yeah, sure. I'll start with the most recent event, and then I'll go back to the beginning. Uh, in January of this year, 2023, our church was unilaterally removed without warning from the Acts 29 network, which is a fellowship of churches. Uh, there's debate whether it's denominate a denomination or a network, but it is you know self-described as a network, and I think it operates as such a coalition, if you if you will. But yeah, we uh, there we were removed, no warning, uh, no no process of appeals. Um, you know, back in the beginning when our church joined with the network. We had close relationships with other pastors in the network who were recruiting us into it. It seemed to be a network where you could find brotherhood. Uh, one of the great appeals to me was when I was in seminary, I was at Denver Seminary, which is very broadly evangelical, like a Wheaton, but even uh, even more broad, if you can imagine. And so I was constantly in classes with other people from different denominations, different backgrounds, non-denominational, which has, on the one hand, some interesting opportunities for uh, mutual edification, mutual sharpening and challenging, but it also can be very demoralizing because you sense you you are kind of uh, on an island. There's no sense of community or commonality around uh, some core convictions biblically. And so when we were Going when I was going to Denver Seminary, and then we were looking for a network to join. It was a, a really breath of fresh air to join a network that had clearly laid out their con- convictions on certain key matters, uh, such as complementarianism, 
that was a key one for us. And then uh, Calvinistic soteriology. So both of those at, at Denver are, are debated territory uh, at best. At, at worst, most of the profs are egalitarian and Arminian. And so uh, Acts 29, when you would enter the room with Acts 29, you would enter knowing that, hey, we've got at least some some brush already cleared and there's some unity there. And I can trust these brothers who are pastors because it seems like I can't have that same level of trust with either other pastors in my context or with uh, or in my education itself. And so it provided a great deal of, uh, you know, just fellowship with brothers who were like-minded. Not only that, but with the network itself, most of the men uh, if you're a church planner, you have a, you have a certain wiring, not every church planner is the same, but you typically have some sense of ambition. You want to get things done. You're dissatisfied with, uh, you know, operating within a, a system that already exists. So you're creating something new. And so it, it takes a certain personality to plant a church for good and for ill. Um, as we've heard with many stories for ill, but for good as well. And so you get that kind of entrepreneurial evangel- evangelistic spirit in the network with common core convictions that you're all very solid on and willing to defend. And boy, that just that creates a lot of energy just right off the bat. So that was the original appeal of joining the network was just a high level of trust, a high level of fellowship and brotherhood. Brotherhood was something they constantly championed. And it's something we all knew exactly what they meant because you could go hang out with any Acts 29 guy and it just felt like cool like these are my people that's that's kind of the 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 vibe if you will right and so i think it's it's safe to say that um you don't uh, feel that vibe uh these days quite in the same way <laughs> right <laughs> that would be fair to say no there's a there's a lot of good churches in the network that remain um i i view it as like a a puritan kind of uh conformist versus nonconformist. There's a lot of good churches in the network who are trying to work within the system for reformation purposes, but their, their position is, uh, is very weak, not, not them personally, but in terms of the power dynamics at play in the institution. And uh, that's unfortunate for them, but, you know, they're also very aware of that. It's not like that's, that's, uh, that's not, surprising to them. So they're aware of their own dynamic. And, you know, part of what you'll see in Acts 29 network is an inability for pastors that are in the network to publicly, uh, you know, call into question, maybe some decisions. There's not a lot of room for debate or discussion. Uh, like you might find in the SBC where you have different tribes, whether it's founders or other things who are trying to hold down the line, you won't have that kind of public display of, this is what I think our network should be. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things they, they're able to do in the network is basically control the narrative. And if you cross them, they'll remove you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of good churches in it still. Um, it's sad for them. It's sad for, it's sad for, you know, Christians in general to see an institution can operate the way they are. Hey, Chase, this is Josh. I want to get a couple things on the table here. With in terms of just brass tacks of how Acts 29 operates. But let's say I'm a church planter and uh, I want to join. What are the benefits? I mean, I guess from an outsider's perspective, it looks to me like you get branding. Like, so, so Acts 29 is going to promote your church and they're going to 
they have people who look to them uh, for like, what church should I join when I move to a new city or whatever? You get access to this cool branding that helps you grow your church plant. Um, is there some funding as well for church plants that they give out? Yeah, so that's a gray area. Early on, there was no funding given to church plants. Uh, there, there was for a season in the last few years a uh, a type of loan that is not uncommon for for church planting uh, coalitions or networks to offer. I think it was in the amount of $25,000. But yeah, obviously the brand was a significant thing. Once you got the brand on the website, it was a it was kind of a credentialing uh, thing, like a clearinghouse for church planting. One thing I think a lot of people don't understand about church planting is the financial risk involved. Um, you know, there's a there's a large proportion of church plants that never make it to their fifth year. And two of the biggest threats to a church plant, besides all the other, we're going to assume, we're going to assume God's providence. We're going to assume God's sovereignty over these kind of initiatives. If we just look at more of a pragmatic, how does a church operate if it's starting up new? Uh, one of the things is going to be leadership dynamics within the core team, because basically in a church plant, most of the people who you start that church with will end up leaving. Um, that's just, that's not, it's not even like any, any fault of the leader necessarily. It's just part of the reality. There's a joke that I kind of tell where it's like, you'll, you'll eventually get to the point in your church plant where you will know more people in your town that used to go to your church than actually attend on a Sunday because of the nature of the American kind of evangelical culture. It's just, there's a lot of people church shop and, and really, when you think about who's attracted to a church plant, uh, it's it's a really interesting dynamic because people who are attracted to a church plant are often dissatisfied with what is. And so once you put into action a kind of an institution like a church, then then that becomes an is, that becomes a thing. And so if they have not worked out their own dissatisfaction with what is, and they're still working out their own immaturity, then they're going to work that out on you too. The other dynamic with church planting is fundraising, especially in expensive contexts like Boulder with a single family home. The average cost is I think 1.4 million at last uh, tally. So there's a, a lot of fundraising uh, that goes into church planting. And so a lot of these networks, whether it's Orchard or ARC or Acts 29, part of the appeal with joining is it it operates like we've been cleared, we've gone through an assessment. So when you're fundraising for people to give to your church plant, it opens up your fundraising very uh, very much to a, a wider audience to where you can say, look, we've been vetted. Because, you know, church planting is not, you don't want to invest in a church plant for an ROI. You know, people aren't, you're not going to venture capitalists going, hey, we're going we're gonna to give you a return on your investment. Of course, when we give to the Lord, we know that we're reaping eternal benefits rather than worldly benefits. And so, you know, these are very uh, precarious investments in the sense that you're looking for people to give money away, to invest in something that they may not see a return on in their lifetime. They may see tangible fruit in the church plant, growing, reaching people, baptizing people, discipling people, raising up children in the Lord. But the fundraising aspect is really big. So if you can get, as a church planner, if you can get kind of the endorsement of a broader network, whether it's NAM or other things, that's going to open the door to further conversations. Um, and if you didn't grow up in the church, like my uh, fellow pastor, Matt, did not grow up in the church, he had, a, he had a limited pool 
to uh, of of people to reach out to to raise funds from. Whereas I grew up in the church, I had a Christian culture in Dallas that I could call some friends, and thankfully they believed in me enough to where they were able to offer some support. But really, the brand itself operates as kind of like we've uh, we've been credentialed in a sense. So in the olden days, it would have been you've been credentialed by a seminary or institution and church planting. You're credentialed by these networks like Redeemer City to City would be a good one. If you go through Redeemer City to City, that's going to be a signal to people that like, oh, I know where this person lands on these particular matters. Therefore, I have a higher trust that the church plant either will work or at least that their convictions are aligned with my own. Yeah. So, so, sorry. So, so this, this network, it doesn't, the Southern Baptist convention is like self-described as an association. And so theoretically what they do is they, um, they ought to be kind of very responsive to the desires of their member churches and their whole governance is designed around that, right. To get feedback from their member churches and, you know, um, Sometimes it's an uphill climb, but anybody who's a member of a Southern Baptist church can theoretically be sent as a messenger to the convention and get their time at the microphone as part of the world's like biggest deliberative body. And they, they really they try to run it that way um, with mixed results, but that's the aspiration. Acts 29 is um, a self-perpetuating board. Um, they don't have any formal um, method by which their members can, can offer feedback. And so it seems like because of that structure, uh, rifts were starting to develop in the network that um, there was no sort of uh, there was no, no mechanism for dealing with it in a healthy way or having a discussion at the governance level. Um, wh- when did you when did you start noticing rifts? I mean, what 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 were the, how did these divisions start creeping into the network? Yeah, so, I mean, the first kind of tip of the hand to there might be a problem here was. And I didn't even view it as a problem back then was when uh, Mars Hill Church was removed from the network uh, and we saw Mark Driscoll experience in terms of Mars Hill had to bring in outside kind of a board of accountability that was kind of a handpicked, you know, who's who of pastors and instead of like a network providing its own checks and balances, that church was kind of on its own to uh, fix its own problems. And so looking back, I can see is that that's kind of my first like insight into like, so this is how this is how conflict is handled and power is distributed in the network. And back then, of course, I think most people were under the impression that this was a good decision to, for them to be removed from the network. But over time, what the rifts began to occur uh, in the last few years, particularly, um, I think it started with, there was this event that the ERLC put on, the MLK uh, 50, I believe. And you had Eric Mason, who was in the network, Matt Chandler, who is the chairman of the board of the network currently speaking at that. And they said a lot of odd things, to put it mildly. And so... You know, I didn't really notice it back then, but I think that those were key indicators. I think that was 2018. And then when 2020 hit, like most organizations, it sent uh, most churches into a, into a crisis mode, uh, trying to figure out what to do, how do we handle this? So you had kind of a series of events with COVID and the BLM, 
uh, and the death of George Floyd, all that exposed some very deep rifts on a, just a Christian worldview level and who people are listening to, what sources they're giving preference to in terms of data and information, what narratives people have been listening to and believing for years now. And so it was really fully exposed to, in my estimation, in 2020. And that's when I started getting on the phone with pastors who were saying, we're out. You know, I don't want to put up with this. And I was kind of like, well, I'm going to stay. And uh, they're like, good for you. And I was like, all right, uh, God bless. And I still talk to some of those pastors to this day. But uh, but that's when the rifts really started getting exposed for those two issues. And, and the COVID thing, honestly, it's not as significant. And in the article I mentioned this on at American Reformer, it's not so much like, actually, I did actually provide a lot of links to, hey, if you do a live stream, here are some good you know, companies to use. So it wasn't a question of pragmatics. It was more the broader worldview implications of, uh, of a society, a government, World Health Organization, these kind of institutions uh, really putting a lot of pressure on governments and local governments uh, to comply, to do things that speak to deep uh, issues in Christianity and being a pastor and uh, the conscience, uh, freedom, all these topics that that Christians have thought about for thousands of years. And so that's that, that was just one. But then with BLM and, and just over time, there's been, you know, the question of complementarianism and what does it mean? It's, it's almost like a mirror image of the SBC right now um, in terms of how that question is being discussed and where that question seems to be going. Um, J.D. Greer, if, if you don't know, used to be in Acts 29. And there's this weird symbiotic relationship between NAM, SBC, and Acts 29 where you've got Matt Chandler, who's SBC, but also the chairman of the board for Acts 29. And there's just constant like power play between these uh, groups, these institutions. And from what I understand, J.D. Greer had basically needed to choose where he was going to, you know, sow his seed, so to speak. Uh, you know, was it going to be more an, an SBC institution and lead in that stream or lead in Acts 29? But, but J.D. Greer's kind of tact and and direction and trajectory is like a mirror image of what's going on in Acts 29 on the question of women being pastors and, and preaching and that kind of stuff. So yeah, with you know, Josh mentioned this um, self-perpetuating board. So this is a little hazy for me as an outsider. Who, who, who makes, who has the authority to make decisions and how do they get that authority within the Acts 29 network? Yeah, so it's interesting because what just just at a baseline level, according to the bylaws, which they don't distribute and they won't give you, but you can go find them on the state of California's website. The, the right, so they won't they won't let you have the, the bylaws. Yeah, those aren't available. Wow. Those aren't uh, accessible documents if you ask for them. Um, and so the board itself has retains all the power. So it's like the worst form of elder rule um, in terms of a self-perpetuating kind of institution with a board that uh, selects its own members. Um, but the reason it's tricky is because they, they will constantly talk in uh, either double speak or just vague terms about some kind of executive leadership team or senior leadership or these other kind of vacuous undefined teams within the network. And so 
what the board will do is they have their executive director uh, who is paid by Acts 29, Brian Howard, and he kind of has his employees. And then he also has his pastors that he's hired to do kind of the work. And so those pastors will be area leads or regional leads. I can't remember what they call them, but they oversee, you know, either a state or multiple states and they, they will kind of enact the wishes of the board, whether it's removing someone from leadership or appointing someone to leadership. So it's, it's very much like a good old boys club in terms of like, if you say the right things and do the right things and befriend the right people, uh, then you, you might, you might have an opportunity to have influence in the network. You might have the opportunity to speak at something, um, or write for the blog or do these kind of things, but the power is ultimately retained by the board, but it's often enacted by staff or by, uh, by area pastors. So it's a little dark and hazy and it seems like that's probably to their advantage to keep it that way. It seems like they, they want to, uh, to keep it that way. Um, is, is, um, so Matt Chandler is, he's currently the chair of the board. That's correct. Yeah. He was the president until he had his own episode, uh, of kind of a removal and restoration in 2022. And after that, he became the chairman of the board instead of the president and Brian Howard became the president. Okay. And so he, and Chandler, is he, has he been brought back into his pastoral position from all of that? Or is he still, um, yeah, no, he was full. Yeah. He was fully restored. And as far as they determined, uh, I think it was in November of 22 or December of 22. So yeah, they had a big Sunday where they restored him to ministry so it's in- <laughs> uh, for, for reasons that are still It's vague. interesting that, that there's a lot of things that uh, you might think would get you um, kicked out of the network that don't, um, that might be um, fairly serious. Um, but, but your experience <laughs> has been um, that you're out without explanation, um, even though there has been no accusation of anything like like uh, these other churches um that's that's interesting to me um uh, as far as the priorities there hey chase that you know i I know that um there was some chatter about this but i think it was last year an acts 29 pastor from australia was um basically saying that transgenderism needs to be affirmed in civil law and, and all of this and we need to engage in pronoun hospitality and all the rest um sort of a soft soft affirmation of, of transgenderism. Is he still in the network? He is still in the network. In fact, Matt Chandler was just there teaching at his conference. Ed Stetzer was there just a few months ago uh, down in Australia, also teaching at that church, City on a Hill Church in Australia. Wow. Wow. And so, yeah, he's still in the network. Um, he advocates for transgender rights. Uh, it's really interesting when you think about you know, Matt Chandler in the summer of 2020, it, it's kind of the same shtick. It's that the church should be at the forefront of these matters. The church should be speaking up on these matters. You know, it's the church's job to to go into these places and bring the gospel to bear. Uh, it was the same shtick that Mason used, Guy Mason used at City on a Hill when he talked about transgender uh, ideology. He said the church should be at the forefront of offering care and love to these people to give them the hope of Jesus. And so it's a very similar playbook uh, that they're using. So yeah, he's still in the network. Uh, 
you know, and, and uh, there seems to be no sign of any problem from an institutional level with, with what, uh, what is being taught at that church. So th- this, um, you guys must be really bad then, right? I mean, <laughs> if you're kicked out <laughs> and all these others are still in, I mean, you guys must be like really bad. Uh, you, I suppose. Yeah. You, you want to tell us about how, how bad you were? <laughs> yes, I'll uh, I'll confess my sins as they have claimed I have done on on uh, phone calls with them. No, I mean like we we asked questions. We were, uh, you know, we were trying to kind of convince guys to stay in the network, to ask questions, to to challenge appropriately, not with any kind of unchristian disrespect or anything like that, but to just try to bring clarity to to topics that. Um, that are really, really uh, not just controversial today, but unbiblical, you know, when we talk about the topic of transgenderism, uh, you know, those things don't uh, line up with scripture. And so not only do you have it uh, biblically, but just culturally, that's a very, you know, heated topic. And so we were just trying to bring clarity as like, hey, what are we as a network going to tolerate in terms of how we talk about such matters? are we a big tent is is what we're saying permissible and what the feedback we kept getting is like you're fine we need your voice now more than ever was something that was said multiple times uh you know i would ask pastors if if i fit in the network uh, and they were like well if you don't fit in the network then i don't fit in the network i'm like okay well i'm going to keep producing content on my podcast i'm going to keep asking questions i'm going to keep preaching in such a way that i uh that matches our statement of faith, that matches biblical convictions on these matters, encouraging Christians, equipping them, exhorting them to follow God's word on these issues. And so really that's, um, that's the extent of what we are doing. You know, even at the national conference in November, we hosted a dinner for other Acts 29 pastors who were kind of on the fringes and we were trying to convince them it's worthwhile to stay. I'm a big believer in reforming institutions rather than building new ones. Although we live in a day where new institutions are necessary. And so we were just trying to encourage them. Hey, it's really important that we, uh, we encourage one another and we point people to the right leaders and, uh, and just stay in the network to try to reform it. Yeah. I mean, this, this does kind of remind me of the early 20th century, what you're seeing in all the mainline churches, you, know, you had ministers in the Presbyterian Church who were denying the virgin birth of Christ. They were denying the resurrection of Christ. You know, maybe it doesn't rise quite to that level, but they they were fine. They stayed in, and everyone said, you know, we have to we have to let them in. Um, but the people who who went after them and said this is wrong, they're out. You know, they're they're the ones who who got the boot. Seems like um, seems like a kind of a, a parallel today. It's uh, history repeating itself. Yeah, I mean Gresham Gresham Machen yeah. wanted to stay right and wanted to fight, and they forced him out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and what did they force him out for? I mean, they forced him out because he was saying this is wrong, and um, and wouldn't tolerate it. So it's like the only thing you can be kicked out for is not being tolerant of error, um, apparently. Right. Yeah, and I, I remember reading. I didn't read. Machen's uh, Christianity and liberalism until I think 21 or 20. And that was very helpful in clarifying for me to give me kind of a sense of like, Oh, I'm not crazy. 
you know, this has happened before and here's somebody who, uh, who tried to do something similar at least. Uh, and it, it, it very much encouraged me and blessed me to read that. And I started encouraging other pastors and come to find out a lot of them had mm. read it. And so they were like, yes, we agree. I'm like, Oh, okay, good. I'm not, I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. And so that's what kind of kept me in it for so long. Cause I was like, Oh, there's, there's good pastors in here. And, uh, and I want to try at least, uh, rather than just kind of quit. Uh, I thought it would be better, more honorable and noble to stay and try to reform it. But I don't fault anybody for leaving at this point. For right. sure. Yeah. And, and just yeah. without warning, you guys got the boot. So, it, And it seems there's a distinction to be made though, too, between the drift that we're seeing in evangelicalism today relative to like the, the, um, the proper theological liberalism debates of the early 20th century insofar as, um, the, you know, those debates, your liberals were like extremely kind of well-educated people who were reading German higher criticism and, you know, um, you know, kind of t- making, you know, intellectual, logical attacks on the truth of Christianity and, you know, re- straightforwardly rejecting inerrancy and things like that. What we're seeing right now is just like extremely emotionally manipulative and like logically very hazy behavior. Like I look at, you know, you look at all the stuff that Rick Warren's been going around spouting for the last three months, trying to save his church from getting kicked out of the SBC. He's just not making, he's not even making precise arguments. He's not really dealing with scripture whatsoever. He's just going around saying things like, guys, if we want to fulfill the great commission, we need every hand on deck and, you know, speaking very euphemistically or even shifting over to JD Greer, um, you know, what, what did this guy say today? Like totally useless. I mean, he says something to the effect of on Twitter, um, you know, my big concern in the debate around complementarianism in the, in the SBC is whether it's going to like offend and discourage women in the convention. Like that's his big, that's his big concern. And so, so he's not, you know, once again, he also is not forthrightly like logically dealing with scripture and ask, starting from a place of asking like, what does faithfulness require um, you know, he's, uh, frankly, um, he's, he's posturing himself as being holier than the apostle Paul, you know, like he's, you know, Paul, was he being very sensitive and thoughtful when he, when he wrote what he did in the epistles? I mean, was he really, you know, that, that's sort of the posture and it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's emotionally manipulative. It's not forthright and logical. And, um, the, the function of it is going to be to just, you know, kind of violently broaden the tent, wrench the Overton window to the left to allow egalitarians into these institutions. Um, so, so anyways, that, that's sorry, sorry for that rant. I have one other rant um, in me before we, maybe we move on, but um, the shadiness of the Acts 29 leadership and how they dealt with your church, Chase, it it's almost impossible to not notice the parallels to Nam, And we've already discussed there's, there's numerous overlap, like, Ed Stetzer, both very influential in NAM policy and Acts 29, J.D. Greer, Matt Chandler, you could go down the list. Um, you know, in, in the SBC, NAM has been under the microscope for like four years. The messengers of the convention have been trying to find a way to get financial transparency over NAM for years. They're not getting it. NAM has a ton of assets under management. Um, we have no idea how that money's being handled. 
and meanwhile, their track record is abysmal. They, they're increasingly, they plant churches who, when they get to financial uh, sustainability, they leave the convention because they hate the SBC and they don't like the brand association of having it. Um, and so there's, there's all these endemic problems with NAM and NAM has a leadership uh, class starting with Kevin and Zell going down the org chart uh, that doesn't want to answer questions, doesn't want to have accountability and wants to basically operate it as a $400 million like slush fund for them and their friends. That that's what it appears to be. I mean, just to, just to talk about how gross some of the behavior is, and this has been reported in like the Washington post, but NAM pays all of their church planters to show up at the convention and vote in favor of, you know, pro NAM policies, which is like just a blatant facial conflict of interest. Uh, it's, it's insane that, that the convention even allows this to happen. Um, this year, hilariously, NAM decided to put its, um, to put its messengers up and hold its sort of side convention, which is parallel to the SBC in the Ritz Carlton in new Orleans. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they're going to be, meanwhile, down the street, the median Southern Baptist pastor, conservative guy from like rural Oklahoma is, you know, his church scrimped and saved to send him down there. And he's staying in the Motel 6, you know, a couple miles away from the convention center. It's a slap in the face. These guys, they, they, these, these are like emperors with no clothes. They actually do not know and they have no business running organizations with budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't know how to do it well, and that's partly why they hate accountability. Because if they have accountability, they're going to get called out on mistakes, on corruption, and all sorts of mismanagement. Hmm. Yeah, and I agree, and I think it would be very easy. I mean, I don't know what's in me that makes me more uh, or different, not more, but just you know, more curious to ask these questions and more open. I. I think back to my early days as a pastor and when people would ask to see the church budget, uh, I felt in, in, uh, intruded upon like, well, why don't you just trust me? And, and that was, that spoke more to my own insecurity and my incompetence at the time than it did speak to any kind of sense of like what's proper and what a good, you know, pastor does. And I think what you discover when you start, looking at all these patterns is you are dealing with it, uh, a leadership class, a cohort of whether it's generational or just a type of leader who are, who are incredibly incompetent at ruling and governing. They don't seem to have a, any sense of propriety and they have no willingness to be questioned. And so you're dealing with a deeply insecure and incompetent cohort of leaders who have gotten into power by you know, personal favors or just preferences, uh, you know, who they know. And, and, uh, it's funny. I think back, I was in construction before I was a pastor. And part of the reason I left construction was kind of the nepotism, uh, that was endemic. There wasn't a lot of like room to, to grow unless you start your own business, because a lot of in in constructions, whether small firms or big firms, it's who, you know, and you know, the owner's son or the, you know, owner's cousin, you know, will get promoted and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just didn't appreciate that lack of whether it's meritocracy or ability to flourish and grow in that industry. Well, you know, I figured the church might be a place where that wouldn't exist. Uh, and turns out it's endemic. It's endemic in these church planting organizations with leaders who really have no business being leaders 
And then they just kind of flaunt their power and are unwilling to be held accountable. And it just speaks to their own insecurity, which is part of the reason why it's ripe for reform. You're not dealing with leaders who are prolific. You know, they may seem prolific because they've written lots of books or have lots of people that listen to them or whatever it may be, have, have loads of assets under management. But, uh, but at the end of the day, they're not principled people who are willing to be held accountable. We've, we've got um, a lot of decline in our, in our society and uh, what you were just saying, Chase, and then what Josh was saying is maybe me think even our even our, uh, our our people that are deviating from the truth these days are substandard. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're not like the liberals of the of the past who were highly educated and and, and making these uh, grand arguments and uh, kind of impressive figures. Uh, sort of sad uh, decline even in the the quality of of the the deviants these days. <laughs> <laughs> well put, Ben. That's uh, that's great. Well, and and that's um, it, it's a it's a big structural challenge, and I guess I'm pointing it out because I think it probably cuts across a lot of. I mean, Ben, you know, let's not pretend that the PCA is perfect. You got your general assembly next week, and I know the Presbyterian structure solves some of these issues we're talking about, but it probably brings some others in, and I'm sure there's parallels. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I I love Presbyterianism, and I mean, what I do love most about the the former government is is that there's uh, you can appeal, you can appeal to a higher higher court, um, and um, that that doesn't it's not going to solve every problem. I mean, we as we know, human sin is going to find a way to ruin everything, uh, even even good things. It's just like secular government; it isn't the form of government's not going to save you because um, you've got sinful people that will abuse it. Um, and yeah, and certainly they've got their own issues that we're, we're having to deal with. Um, but, um, hearing about Acts 29, it it certainly does make me think that that's one thing good about, about the PCA is, is, um, you're not just left in the dark, you know, I mean, people might try to shut you down, but you can appeal, um, and, and they can't just do it in the dark. They're at least, you know, they're at least going to have to institute a formal process, to to do anything um and that seems to be about the last thing that uh you guys had happened to you so um well uh chase you you guys this is a changing course a little bit but uh you guys have had more troubles than just that um recently Uh, you've had you've had some troubles in boulder with your own church uh building uh situation because you you don't own your building correct that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, do you, do you want to tell us about this? I and mean, the reason I ask is, is um, I think a lot of churches in America, faithful churches, are going to deal with this because there's a lot of churches that don't own their own property, and I think this is going to be something that a lot of churches are going to have to think about very seriously um, and and try to you know prepare for this. Yeah. So we were renting a middle school uh, up until 2020. And even our relationship with the school district, we kind of had this imaginary world where there would be kind of a mutual enrichment where we could bless the school and we could use the public space to meet for church. And this is what a lot of church planters do. And so we were renting a school, but even before 2020, we were told, you know, there will come a day where we're not able to use public facilities uh, because of our biblical convictions 
So we knew that our days were numbered. COVID just kind of accelerated that timeline. Um, and so we ended up, you know, meeting in a parking lot for a while. And then we moved into a, uh, a local bar restaurant concept uh, to meet because they had a large open space where we could meet. Um, in the midst of that, God blessed us with uh, an outpouring of generosity, which was very, very surprising, um, very providential. We were able to purchase a building in Boulder, but because of all the regulations and code requirements, it's an old Nazarene church. We're having to bring up to code and the, the use review of that building has triggered a, a lot of improvements that we did not anticipate making. So we're in the midst of remodeling that. So Lord willing, we'll be in uh, this time next year. But until that time, we're kind of, uh, you know, leasing from others. One thing that happened, I guess, back in uh, November is a social activist in Denver uh, started trying to dox me, my family, my fellow pastor's family, kind of expose us as some kind of evil people, um, these wicked Christian nationalists uh, that the liberals have been writing about for years now, decades now. And uh, that's not a term that our church has, has deployed or utilized uh, uh, in our teaching. You know, we're happy to talk about it as a topic, as a concept, uh, but she, she wanted to paint us that way. So she was very active, got her friends involved in uh, this campaign of hers. On uh, Holy Week leading up to Easter, someone had taken her kind of research, if you can call it that, and wrote an op-ed in the local paper, writing all sorts of disparaging remarks about us. Very much what Jesus taught about when we should rejoice, when people say all kinds of evil things about you. You know, whether, you know, we're misogynist or we're the Christian Taliban, we're pro-birthers, we're, you know, the Westboro Baptist, all these kind of slurs. And so, uh, so that, that resulted in a lot of pressure being put on the business that we rent from, and they've decided not to renew our lease uh, in light of all this. We had been meeting there for, uh, I think, going on two, maybe three years. And so we're kind of in limbo right now trying to figure out, okay, what is our church going to do for worship on Sundays until this building is finalized? And, uh, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's what's been going on locally. Thankfully, there's been a lot of Christians who support us and not just Christians, but non-Christians. Mm -hmm. One fun story uh, is, you know, people who have known us, we have good relationships with people who are non-Christians. We love, we love people well. And uh, one, one lady who's a lesbian in a, in a relationship, uh, you know, by the civil government uh, that's called a marriage. And so she and her partner came to our Easter service only to show us support because of this slanderous op-ed that was written against us. She just wanted to come and, you know, be our friend. And so, uh, so it's just a, it's a very interesting time for churches, for our church, particularly in our context in the deep blue city. Um, you know, I, I've been talking with one friend who, you know, you've got the legacy of Tim Keller in, in New York city, and then you've got the legacy of Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, and uh, two di very different contexts, by the way. But Boulder tends to be more progressive and more like California or, uh, or New York City. And so it creates a lot of interesting challenges in terms of, you know, uh, how you go about ministry and reaching people. But these are things that will be more commonplace uh, for many churches all across our nation. And that's part of the reason I, I personally have my kids in, in private Christian school and I'm on the board of that school. 
and I think Christians should be deeply, deeply concerned about uh, uh, the the school boards. Uh, we had one local elected official call label our church on Twitter a hate group, um, and she's the vice president of the Boulder Valley School wow. District. And so you have these school boards that are uh, that have been weaponized, that uh, claim some kind of public neutral square while they advocate their own civil religion in the schools. Um, and so for churches, they're just in a very precarious position when they start leasing from entities that are not either, I'll use the phrase hardened in the sense of like, they're not, they don't have core convictions that are very aligned. And when the woke mob comes for them, you know, the easiest thing to do is to scapegoat the church, which is a wicked thing to do, a very wicked thing to do, but it, it's just kind of the nature of, of the business right now. Yeah. I guess in some ways you might be safer churches might be safer with the schools um, in a way because it's a little bit harder sometimes um, to to kick yes. people out yeah. um, uh, of the schools. Interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. Josh, do you have last question? Yeah, I, I think that you're like the situation of your church in Boulder raises interesting questions about what does like Blue City ministry look like? And if you think about it, there's all these pressure points and pain points for for a church like yours and you know i'd love to love to hear some of your thoughts on this but i just sort of think like back when i worked in a at a pretty mainstream like law firm and um you know like it, it would have been tough for me to be like an elder at your church if that church was in the news um with hit pieces written about it um i would think that you know um there there's you know, obviously there's like the building pressure. There's all kinds of stuff that local businesses or even government officials can do to disfavor your church. Now, y'all have stood up to the pressure. You haven't compromised, but, um, you know, 80% of churches would, right? Or they would have people on their elder board who are at a prominent local business and they're worried about their job or livelihood or standing in the community, and all of these connections and dependencies that you have as an organization become pain points. Um, what, you know, do you, how do you think your church has done in terms of being resilient and being kind of, I mean, maybe even anti-fragile, you know, not, not bowing to the pressure, but actually becoming stronger from it. Do you think it's possible for that to be a broad strategy for Christians who want to do stuff in blue cities? Or on the other hand, is it kind of like, maybe the predominant model should be um, build and put down roots in places where you're not going to have those systemic pressures. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's one our elders have talked about. It's one I wrestle with in my own soul, especially with, you know, uh, great strides being made in, in states like uh, Florida and uh, friends in Texas where I'm from. Um, but I think there's multiple strategies to engage, but there's got to be a local kind of fellowship of churches that have each other's back. Um, yeah, our church is, has navigated it. I mean, to be, to be quite frank, like we're definitely in over our head in terms of uh, what's being thrown at us and what kind of pressure we're under, which to us is just an opportunity to remind us to turn to the Lord and trust in him and his ways. That doesn't mean we don't seek counsel from other churches that have had similar campaigns in Boulder County against them with change.org coming against them for their own building project. Um, and so one guy, one local pastor choked, he's had George Soros himself come after him in Boulder County. And so uh, we're not the first, this isn't necessarily new, 
those were great reminders for us to hear from local pastors. But I think the strategies to engage, uh, you know, they they can vary. Obviously, if you're if our church is going to be very convictional, and you know, our posture when we moved to Boulder was always very much one of, hey, let's let's have robust debates about controversial topics. Let's talk about you know the creation story, and let's have an atheist come debate chase. And so that, that this has always been kind of a a part of our ministry in terms of how we uh, how we go about engaging topics. And so when 2020 hit, it was just another opportunity to kind of flex those muscles. And for our elders and our church members, um, you know, I as an elder and pastor, you kind of want to guard the sheep from these kind of things. But as we've experienced these kind of external pressures, you know, it's kind of out in the open now. It's in the paper. It's that kind of thing. I've even got a church member now who he himself is wanting to write an op-ed um, not, not necessarily defending us, just defending Christianity. Uh, and so it's, it's created kind of an interesting energy in our church. And I guess you could def- describe it as anti-fragile. Um, ultimately, our conviction as Christians follows Hebrews and, and uh, the teachings of Jesus, where he talks about being re- rejoicing in persecution and not being afraid of losing property or, or anything like that. For the sake of standing up for the truth, there is wisdom. You need to follow wisdom uh, when you operate in these kind of contexts in terms of, you know, you could go just burn the ships, say your most controversial ideas or, or just preach the most controversial text of the Bible uh, in order to get canceled. That's not I don't think that's a noble goal necessarily. It is a strategy. It just it, it may not work out very long for you. But uh, but yeah, operating in these deep blue cities, you've got to have some semblance of like resiliency and elders who have your back. And you also have to be willing to be held accountable if you do make mistakes and admit them. You have to do basically the opposite of what NAM and the Acts 29 Network do. You have to be willing to own, uh, hey, look, I could have done that better. Hey, you know what? I'll delete that. I don't. I shouldn't have said that. Um, you have to be human. You just have to be a, a man who fears God and who is willing to receive accountability. And that's, that's a... a principle we've tried to operate and that that conviction has only heightened as this persecution has come because i know that i could always do better i can always learn and i can always grow and so that willingness to hear to learn to grow to be curious um, has been an advantage has been something that's been advantageous for us as a church and it's something our church members have taken seriously as well you know what the the something i just thought of like elders like when you're when you're looking at a candidate to be an elder i mean some, something churches are going to have to think about now and probably need to impress upon those men is uh, just to count the cost you know before they become an elder if it, like josh said if they're um on you know a lawyer at a major firm or they're an executive in a business or things like that this is not that they shouldn't become elders, but they need to they need to go in with their eyes open about uh, about where we are as a society and the likely cost of doing that. Um, you know, because I think if they don't go in clear eyed about that, then their tendency is going to be to find any way to sort of compromise to to avoid all of the the um, the vitriol being thrown down on them and, and losing their job, losing their position. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't, absolutely, if you yeah. don't engage it critically and straightforwardly, you're going to end up with an elder board that's full of people that have extreme headline risk aversion. Yeah. And what's that going to do to yes. the pastor's willingness and ability to speak prophetically 
and boldly. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and so you've got to uh, have those conversations and it just goes back to that transparency and accountability. And honestly, if a, if a, a potential other candidate was, uh, you know, opposed to that kind of stuff, I wouldn't fault them necessarily uh, for saying, I'm not going to be an elder right now because of that. I would rather them say that then, than, uh, than get into the elder room and then find out they're very uh, conflict avoidant or, uh, you know, what did you call it? Headline. They don't want the headlines to come at them. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. It's just, it's not sinful for someone not to become an elder. You know, if it, if it turns out that they just think, you know, I, I can't do it, um, then God hasn't called everyone to be an elder. So, you know, that's, um, that, that might, but they just need to think about it. They need to consider these things. Yeah. Well, guys, I think we, uh, think we're about on time. I think that's a great note to close it on. Chase, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about what you have cooking out there in Boulder. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate all the prayer and support uh anyone who's listening can offer the prayers are effective and needed at this time so appreciate you guys giving me some time here to share what's going on absolutely and to the to the audience thank you all for joining us as always um you can check us out at americanreformer.org read our stuff you can read chase's article um and you can read a lot of other um spicy material on pressing cultural issues all anchored in the protestant tradition um, if you like this podcast, please review it, uh, rate it, subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, anywhere else, uh, any other fine uh, purveyor of podcasts. Um, but thanks again, everyone, and God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer Podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer. <laughs>